On this episode of the Tough Juice Podcast, I had a special guest, so special that special is in his title, Latroy Hawkins, special assistant to the Minnesota Twins organization. We went down the path and talked about a lot of things, about the importance of longevity in this space on what you put into your temple. The man went vegan in the height of his career, and he, I'm not even going to tell you. You're just going to have to listen to the podcast. So be sure to subscribe to the Tough Juice Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, my YouTube page, or wherever you get your pods. This is a good one. So, Latroy, let's just get right into it. Uh, uh, huge fan of yours, by the way. And before we begin, I recognize your shirt, the Vote Initiative. I'm part of the More Than a Vote Campaign Initiative as well. Been in that space for quite some time. Any thoughts on the Black Lives Matter protests and all the things happening around the world right now with climate, with civil rights movements and everything uh, happening? What's your what's your main initiative? What's your main call to action? Um, my main initiative, I got this shirt at the uh, Minnesota ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. Um, you know, just voting, getting out and changing laws and legislation. And, you know, the big thing for me is prison reform. Um, my brother went to prison in 1995 and he just got home February 25th. I mean, February the 5th, uh, the excessive sentencing and mass incarceration of black, black men. Um, you know, that's why I'm, I'm all in on the voting and not just voting on for presidential. We need to get people to understand that you need to start voting, you know, mayors, your local prosecutors and things like that. It starts on the, on the city level and then you work your way up. And that's, that's, that's so powerful. You talking about, you know, prison reform, mass incarceration, all those things. I also serve on the board of the Vera Institute, and I'm proud to be, uh, you know, on the board of governance in that space where we address all those things and we try to get bills passed to, you know, move the needle in that space. And I'm so glad that you talked about not just voting on the presidential election, uh, on the presidential level. I think that it's so important that people are engaged on the county and the state level as well, because those elected officials that fill those seats, if they're not doing the things that they're supposed to do for us, what should we be doing right now? Outside of just, uh, you know, protesting and, you know, trying to get the right people in those seats, uh, what are some of the other initiatives we should be doing? Uh, I just encourage people to do your homework, man, because, you know, like you said, on the, on the local, the local, um, local, those things affect you directly in your city, who your police chief is. We have to educate ourselves on what each elective official does and do your background on them and make sure you, you know, get out and vote. I don't care what happens when you hear right now, you talk about the, the postal service. They say Trump doing this or you're, you're mailing back. No, forget that. We will not be denied at the polls. Vote. That's all you, you got to get out and vote. And if you need help to vote, you can email me and I'll do my best to make sure that you can get to the polls to vote because we have your voice. And I know a lot of people feel like their voice is not heard, but collectively our voices are heard. Collectively they're heard. Yeah, that's, that's, that's huge. And we just wanted to harp on that just a little bit more because we want to make sure that everybody get out there and have that same enthusiasm as we did, you know, in 2008, and clearly, uh, you know, in the past when Obama was, you know, up and running for office. But let's start at the beginning of your career and in your life. Uh, I know you're a Texas guy, but uh, you grew up in Gary, Indiana. Uh, what was your childhood like living in the suburbs of Chicago? And what was your family? Like? And what did, what did you have? 
Quran, it definitely wasn't the suburbs. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it was, I live like maybe 28 miles from downtown Chicago, but it seemed like a world away. Um, you know, Gary's a, a steel mill city. Um, we had like four steel mills when I was growing up. There's only one now is U.S. Steel that's still up and running. Um, you know, I was raised by uh, my mom, her mom, my grandfather and my grandfather's, you know, new wife, who's they've been married. They were married a lot longer than I was born. So she's my grandma also. And, you know, just a blue collar family working. I mean, we wasn't definitely didn't wasn't rich. I had two brothers, um, one that went to prison. I have one that works in, in Indy in Gary, um, you know, but, you know, regular life. I mean, I had to navigate my way through, you know, you know, going left or going right. You know, I had a lot of my friends who didn't make it to high school graduation because of, you know, you know, drugs or, you know, other bad situations that got them in the position where they were, you know, killed. So, you know, I had to navigate my way just like I'm sure you did growing up. And, you know, and I was fortunate that I, I played a couple different sports and I had, you know, I had some some real uh, legitimate black men in my life that, you know, guided me and kept me going on the straight and arrow. And that starts with my grandfather and, you know, a couple coaches from high school. So it was definitely a truly, a, a you know, a, a, a village uh, kept me on the right, on the right path. Uh, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up, the uh, importance of mentorship, because, you know, me growing up, I didn't I didn't have that that mentorship from a male standpoint. Uh, my mother was great. My grandmother was great. Uh, but I fell victim to like my circumstances and my surroundings. And I had to do 18 months in corrections. And it was a it was a process of me getting to the point of identifying the problems that I had and had to address them head on for me to pivot and be the best version of myself. So can you just talk about the importance of having a mentor and also uh, what other sports you actually play? Uh, I played basketball and I ran track in high school and played baseball. Um, you're right. And, you know, when it comes, you know, like things that we do, uh, the way we were raised, where we were raised, they all, that all those things, like they are a recipe, a recipe to, to the final, almost the final product of who you're going to be inside. And, you know, when you raise in, in a dysfunctional type environment, you take a lot of, you take a lot of that dysfunction with you into your adulthood. And, you know, it takes a lot of work internally um, once you get to a certain age, but it, I think what, what it did for me having good mentors is that I, I always knew that there was, there was better, there was more out there for the Troy Hawkins than, you know, my surroundings. And I always wanted to get away from my surroundings. Uh, my mom can tell you, she just passed away. I just buried my mom August the 1st, but she's always, she always said, you always said when you was a little boy, you're going to move away. <laughs> you wasn't coming back. I said, well, I moved away, but I, I'm, I'm coming back. But, you know, just having those male figures, my high school uh, basketball coach, he played in the NFL so I definitely had a, a strong mentor and it's coach Moreau. And he was six foot six, like 280 pounds. He was, he was a, um, a tight end in, in the NFL. And, you know, he didn't, you know, my love language wasn't, well, Detroit, you can do it this way. No coach Moreau. I got paddles in high school up until my senior year, my last basketball of my senior year. So we were getting swat. So him cursing at me and, 
he knew what he needed to do to get me going. And I had another coach who was our head coach who took the other approach. And, you know, just those those mentors constantly stand on me because I I tell you what, Karan, I definitely wanted to go left. I sure did. All my buddies were going left. And, you know, it was I was definitely getting pulled in in, in both directions. And I'm glad that um I ended up listening to the the older voice that was in that was in my ear and that was from my a couple of my coaches isn't that like the most easiest thing in the world though to like pivot in the wrong direction and that that going down that straight and narrow path and doing the right thing is always the the hardships but the fruits of the labor at the end of the day is so rewarding as you are the special assistant for the minnesota twins doing a remarkable job in that space and i know you have a soft spot for the twins who you work for today but before you made it to the big leagues, you played uh, four years in the minors. And I know that was kind of a, a college experience, but bridging the gap, so to speak. Would you would you agree on that? Yes, it's definitely uh, very similar to a college experience um, without the classroom. You definitely get a chance to, to hone your craft. I mean, we had to work hard to to uh, get better each and every day. And we're living in small towns, Elizabeth in Tennessee, I played in Fort Wayne, Indiana, Nashville, Tennessee, um, Salt Lake City, Utah, and, you know, in Minnesota and then 11 other cities after that. But, you know, it is it's definitely a college experience, a lot of fun. Um, you got a lot of a lot of long ride, bus rides into small towns and <laughs> hostile environments. But um, I think that make you appreciate once you get to the, to the top of your sport. And, you know, once you get there, the work is not done, as you know. Now you got to continue to get better because I always said they're drafting the they're drafting your replacement every year. Every year your, 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 your replacements get drafted. That's deep. Can you can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Because you, you said something that's super intriguing. And I want people to understand this, like how important it is to remain Consistent, but sometimes even better than consistent because your replacement is continuing to be drafted or your position is continuing to be recycled and your competition is like literally on the heels of you if you're not continuing to excel uh, in that space. So I never really understood that when I played. Uh, now being on the side of front office and being in the space where I get to go out and scout amateurs and I spent a lot of time with our our um, our national scouts who are around the country, you know, getting prepared for the Major League Baseball draft that we have the first of uh, June every year. And literally, they are on the road 300 days out of the year doing reports. So that's a true statement. Like and like being in the big leagues, that turnover is is, is consistent. So you have to be consistent in your elite performance to to not have to worry you know when you're consistent and you're elite at what you do you really don't have to worry about your spot being taken you know somebody something's going to have to happen for that person either contractual or you know you start to lose some of your you know some of your your um you start to get a little old but other than that you know if you're consistent and elite as you know you're going to be around you're going to be around for a long time in the podcast, Nice White Parents, reporter Hannah Jaffe-Walt, you may know her from This American Life, 
started looking to, into a school in her neighborhood after her kids became school age in New York City. Hannah examines this public middle school traditionally filled with black and brown students. After a number of white families arrived, she investigated the school's history and finally realized what kept getting in the way of making the school better. White parents. Nice White Parents is made by Serial Productions, a New York Times company, the same people who made Serial in S-Town. Launch CTA is now through 819. It's available everywhere, wherever you get your pods. Ben CTA, 820 and beyond, all episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. I think that when you see yourself getting a little long in the tooth and you probably see that slippage happen from an athletic standpoint, not being able to get you know close to a ball. I know in our sport, you know, in basketball, if that, that dunk turns into a layup, uh, yeah, somebody's coming to replace you rather quickly. Yeah. <laughs> See, I, um, the good thing, when I retired in 15, I could still throw hard. I was still throwing 94 to 96 miles an hour, but hey. I couldn't recover. And that's when I knew it was time for me to give them the jersey back and say, thank you for the It's been incredible. I appreciate everything baseball has given me, everything baseball has done for me. You know, I'm bowing out gracefully now. That's spot old right there. What I, I got to ask you this, uh, and I know we got to the back end quick, but what was your feeling like when you finally got the call to join the Twins? I was um, I was in spring training, and it was in 1905, and we were the strike year. So we were, we're, you know, we were locked out. And when we made an agreement, Major League Baseball gave us like maybe two and a half weeks for spring training, and we ran right back into the season. So I ended up making a team out of spring training. I remember Tom Kelly, our manager at the time, calling me in the office. And I thought he was calling me in the office to tell me I was getting sent back down to AAA. And he told me I made the team. And I was like, okay, that's, that's pretty cool. I'm like, okay, it just got real. And I couldn't – I didn't want to show my excitement to him. I wanted to show TK that, you know what, I got ice water in my veins and I'm ready for this. But I couldn't wait to get out to go call my, my mother and my grandfather. I couldn't wait to tell them that I made I made the big league squad. And that was – I mean, I wasn't – and thinking back, I wasn't ready to, make, to be in the big leagues at all. I was not ready. But I was in an organization that was doing some rebuilding – and we were going young, and I was, uh, you know, I was one of the recipients of that. Oh, that's crazy. Hey, bro, I, I about literally lost everything in me when I found out that I was getting the call and that I knew that I was going to be a lottery pick. And the way that they go about it with us is that um, we go to a, a gang of workouts during the draft process, and all these different teams had guaranteed me. If I'm here at this spot, they're taking me. So I had a guarantee at, you know, 6, 7, 11. So I was just, once I got those guarantees, especially from the legendary Pat Riley, I literally called my mom, my grandma. I said, make sure everybody in the family in the house. And they put me on the speakerphone. I was like, we're about to make it. We're about to do this. We're about to, like, just going crazy with it. So I always love to hear those stories. You know that you've made the ultimate dream come true as, you know, as a competitor, as a, as an athlete in a, whatever space to just share that energy in that moment with your loved ones. I know it had to be extremely rewarding. 
Well, Karan, I you know it's funny. Um, that call I got was when I was in high school. Yeah, when I was not a twin. I was in high school. I was in my government econ class taking a, a final. Like Miss Boone made her way towards my desk, and she set the little paper right on the edge of my desk while I'm doing my final. And it says you've been selected in the seventh round by the Minnesota Twins. They'll be in touch. And I really didn't I didn't get excited because you know why? Why that? Past that damn final. <laughs> <laughs> you had work to do. I got work to do. And I got home and I told my grandfather, and he was like, okay, what's next? So we were so oblivious to the whole process. I didn't know. I mean, I you know, I played baseball, basketball, ran track, but you know, baseball was my least my you know, I thought baseball was the least sport that I was, you know, talented in. So that was that was I was more a little bit more apprehensive because of, you know, I didn't think baseball was my best sport. That's 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 amazing, man. And not even thinking that baseball was your best sport. Uh, and I, I gotta I gotta ask this question as well. Like in your career with the twins, you had some tough seasons as a starter. But eventually, the team switched you from a starter to a relief pitcher. How did that happen? And do you think that actually saved your career? Or how did that change your career? Or what's your thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. I was, you know, young guy, you really don't understand the difference between the minor leagues and the big league. You can say you do, but you really have no clue. Like, it, it, it's not even close. I dominated in the minor leagues. Well, the league's a little different. And – I um I just couldn't get over the hump facing the facing the team you know three times facing a batting order three times in a row and he told me that I remember him calling me in his office and told me you know what we're gonna move you to the bullpen and with your athleticism with your arm I think you're gonna be pretty good out there and I'm like the only question I had for him at that time was do I have to go to the minor leagues to learn how to pitch out of the bullpen and he looked me in my eyes and said that's up to you. And I was like, well, if I get to stay here, I'm ready for the challenge. And it definitely changed my career. Uh, I didn't have to worry about facing, you know, a team, a team's lineup three times, going through the lineup three times. Uh, I got to face a guy one time, maybe twice. And I always felt like, you know, either I get you or you're going to get me. I end up throwing harder. Uh, I end up having better stuff. And the one thing that being a starter helped me when I went to the bullpen I had so many guys on base as a starter that when I got to the bullpen, having guys on base didn't phase me at all. <laughs> so I was very comfortable in those uncomfortable situations because of my lack of success as a starter. That's interesting. Who were some of the veteran guys that, that like helped you during that process? I had um, Paul Molitor, who's a Hall of Famer, one of my teammates, Kirby Puckett. Uh, Bob Tewksbury, Kevin Tappany, um, ooh, Bobby Wells, Mike Jackson, you know, a few guys that, that I can remember because, you know, that was a very long time ago at the beginning of my career. And I think about when people ask me, what was the coolest thing? I'm like, golly, from the first 10 years or the last 10 years. That's great. Can you, can you talk about uh, Tory Hunter and that, that small group of friends that you had had in your twins days and how that that bond formed and how important it is to you know stay connected with guys like that yeah all you know that my group that i'm i'm really good friends with and still very close with it 
you know, we all came through the Twins organization, not not pretty much together, but at different times. And we were, you know, Eddie Gordado was one of my good friends. He was a year ahead of me. You know, I was two years ahead of, ahead of Tory and three years ahead of Jock Jones. And, you know, Matt Lawton and I were, you know, at the same same level each year with the Twins. So, you know, we all had a chance to play together. And, and, and throughout our minor league career, you know, we always told each other, you know what, if we're going to make it, we're going to have to link up with like-minded people. Mm. Not linking up with guys who just wanted to be here and just happy sign a professional contract. You know, I made sure my friends had the same goals, and that was to make it to the big leagues. And when, you know, I linked up with some guys who had the same same goals as I had, and we were able to push each other, you know, whether it was another pitcher or, you know, most of my friends were position players, but we were able to push each other. And those that bond we formed in our in the Twins organization, you know, once you get to a certain part of your career and, you know, guys start going all over the place, we still had that same bond. Um, all our wives are good friends. You know, it's just it was just, you know, just a friendship that we that we made sure we um, <clears throat> cultivated and and pushed each other and and tell each other, you know, you suck. Get out of your own head. Uh, you're better than that. Let's go. Um, pay attention. You know, just little things that we can say. We said that we can say to each other that we, you know, that other people couldn't say to us. And we held each other accountable for our actions on and off the field. And, you know, Tori's a little younger than I am, about two years. But, you know, he's a very good friend. And and Tori's, Tori's, Tori's a man. Tori's a man. You know, a lot of times when you read about somebody, you know, well, they just like that in a public eye. Well, you know, I think my friends, me and my friends, we're, we're the same way no matter what. You, you get, you see, what you see is what you get. We're not one way when we're here and another way when we're over here. You see Latroy Hawkins is what you get. When you see Tory is what you get. When you see Jock Jones and Matt Lawton and Eddie Guardado, you know, this is who we are. Hey, Latroy, that's, that's powerful, man. And I love the fact that you said you have to surround yourself around like-minded individuals in order to, you know, accomplish the goals and stay true to the mission that you guys were on. Uh, that's, that's, that's truly profound and deep. Uh, can you talk to me also about your diet? I read you used to be a vegan when you played in California. One, how did you manage to still have energy, you know, maintaining that diet? And did it affect your high level of performance? That was 2012 when I decided I was going to go vegan. Uh, I read the book. I can't think of it now. Wow, you got to put me on the spot. But I read a book, and it changed how I thought about um, food in, in general, how I thought about food, I mean, where our food come from and, and how it affects our body and how food is the real medicine for you know our bodies. And, man, I read it, and it just hit me like it hit me like a ton of bricks. And then I started thinking about things that I never thought about, some more research. And, you know, I said, you know what? I'm going to try it. I'm going to try it. I, I mean, it, it can't hurt me. I'm still going to get all the protein I need because I'm going to get plant-based protein. So I, you know, I, I tried, I started like January the 20th and I started it right after everybody finished their, um, their, what's the, the, uh, the fasting for the beginning of the year. And I started January the 20th and I did it all the way to Thanksgiving. And it was easy for me because I'm the type of guy, I, I could pretty much eat and drink anything. I get to spring training that year with the Angels, and one of our clubhouse guys was a vegan as well. So that kind of made it easy. 
um, I started cooking. I bought a book called The uh, Vegan Slow Cooker. So I bought a crock pot and started, you know, cooking on my own. And our clubhouse guy, he used to cook. And I reached out to all the visiting teams and told them what I was doing and how I was eating. And they made sure that I had a vegan fare when I got there. So that was, that made it pretty much, that made it very easy. I lost a lot of weight. I did lose some weight. Um, you know, I was, you know, I lost about eight, nine pounds, but you start looking at my blood numbers. I was just as healthy as you can get. And at the end of the day, um, you know, people caught up with what you look on outside, but your inside can be all messed up. And I knew when I was vegan, my insides were good. They were very good. To my next question, because, you know, JT, our researcher, posed this question and he went down to the to the facts. And I know our viewers and listeners are going to be tuned in specifically to this question. We talk about longevity. When you finish your career, you were the only active player to pitch in thousands of innings and you were the oldest player still at the age of 42 to still be in the game. Do you think staying playing at a high level for so long was the vegan diet or was it a combination of that and being consistent and the hard work or like, what was it? Because everybody's looking for the founding youth. Everybody's looking for longevity and they respect the spaces. So they, they definitely want this seed in uh, wisdom and information. I was always a, a thin, wiry, athletic guy. Probably in 2007 when I was with the Colorado Rockies is when it all changed for me. And just started doing more research on, you know, all the food that I like to eat, hamburgers, hot dogs, Sasha's and just looking at the diet that, you know, I had growing up and the diet that I continue to have as an African-American male and thinking about and reading about African-American issues and seeing, you know, my grandmother, my grandfather, my uncles, my aunties and some of the issues that they were having. And I made a I made a, a promise to myself right then that I was going to do all I could not to have diabetes, high blood pressure, um, try to stay away from the early signs of, you know, hypertension and, and um, uh, heart disease and things like that. And I know a lot of times people, it's genetic, you know, it's, it's, um, it's you know, if you're, it's in your family. Um, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that some of the things that are in my family, as far as medically, I don't have to be subject to, you know, my mom just passed away. She was a diabetic and she had a complication having surgery to get a, um, a tube put in for dialysis. Um, my grandfather passed away May 9th and he was 94 years old and he was pretty healthy. 94 year old born and raised in Mississippi, ate a lot of sweet potatoes. He drank milk, which I thought it was the most awful thing, but um, he walked a lot. Um, he tried to stay as active until he couldn't be active anymore. Um, but I just said, I didn't want any of those. I don't want any of those issues. And, you know, at the rate I'm going now, hopefully I don't have any of those issues, but I'm doing my damnest, man, not to, because I, I've seen what diabetes and higher blood pressure and having to go on dialysis and things like that due to African-Americans, just not African-American men, African-American women too. And if I can do something now, to help me live a better life when I get older, I'm gonna do all I can. And that's that's I'm I'm so glad you touched on that because my daughter, who's a juvenile diabetic, she has type one diabetes because she her pancreas does not produce 
insulin. And I know a lot of people may have, you know, type two, which is uh, sometimes recycled behavior for some of the things that you put into your temple. So I'm so glad we're having this discussion on the importance of what you put in your body, especially with COVID and all these things where a lot of people are immune uh, compromised, you know, from that standpoint. It's very important that you put the right things in your body in order to have a foreseeable future. You have to, uh, as they say, eat to live, not live to eat. And I think that's very important. That's powerful. <laughs> yeah, man. But I understand that you are a god, you the godfather of Kansas City Chiefs quarterback, Patrick Mahomes, and whose father, Pat Mahomes, was your teammate with the Twins. And I know you're extremely proud of him for winning the Super Bowl and cashing in on that bag. So first, I want to ask you, uh, did you expect that success for him to happen so soon? And why did it happen in your eyes? Um. Yeah, Karan, I, I've watched him his whole life. And if you, you can ask Jeremy, man, I was talking about Patrick back in 2016, like when he was at Texas Tech, because I think his – the big thing for Patrick is that he never had a quarterback coach or had a coach in general put him in a box. They didn't put him in a box. They didn't tell him you have to be this type of quarterback to be successful at – in high school, you don't have to be this type of quarterback to be successful in college. You don't have to be this type of quarterback to be successful in NFL. They let him be who he wanted to be. You know, they let him use his basketball ability. He was one hell of a basketball player in high school. They let him use his baseball instincts, incredible pitcher, shortstop in high school. They let him incorporate all those, those other sports to his football game. And I think that's that's I mean that that right there was huge for him. He didn't go to those quarterback camps and where oh, you got to do it this way. This is the only way to do it to, to get it done. No, his coaches at each level recognized that they had a guy who had a, as they would say in the movie, uh, a unique set of skills, <laughs> a, unique, a unique set of skills that you know you can't tame them. You can't you can't corral a Mustang. You're not supposed to. And, you know, when you think of Patrick, you know, I'm not surprised because I watched him do it in high school. I watched him do it in college and he's doing it on Sundays. The exact same thing. He's a better quarterback now with better technique, but he's doing the same things. He's making the same plays. And, you know, him being the MVP, not surprised. Me and his dad will tell you in a heartbeat, you know what? We're just happy that the world gets to see what we've seen in him all the time, all along. When people didn't believe him, when they were recruiting him, you know, when uh, Kingsbury came to White House, Texas to recruit him, Kingsbury saw it. Nobody else saw it. And with Patrick being as loyal as he is, when Alabama and Florida and Notre Dame and all those big schools finally noticed it and started coming after him, he was like, no, 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 no. I'm going to Texas Tech because I'm loyal. And with that being said, he's been put in a lot of good situations, like getting drafted by the Chiefs with Coach Reed. I mean, Coach Reed, they don't get any better than that. Yeah. Help a little bit. It doesn't get any better when you get drafted into a situation where they already have a, you know, a damn good quarterback in Alex Smith. And Alex Smith didn't take the stance as, screw you, young guy, you're here to take my job. 
No, Alex took the stand and says, I'm going to teach you everything I know. That doesn't happen that much. And for him to do that, that shows you what type of, you know, individual that Alex Smith is. He didn't hold anything from Patrick. He didn't hold anything from him. So, you know, I got to give Alex a lot of a lot of credit knowing this guy come to take his job and he give him everything that he knew. He gave him everything. He gave him the whole bag. Yeah, man, there you go. He gave him the cheat code. That <laughs> happened, man. So Patrick's been put in a, um, you know, some real good positions. And, uh, and a lot of that's because of the type of person he is. You know, we talk about his football abilities, but, you know, his IQ is off the charts. Photo, photographic memory. Um, his love for his community and to, you know, always make a place better than, than it was when he got there. And that's, that's who he is. And it's a perfect segue to my next question and my last question for you, Latroy. When you think of Latroy Hawkins and your legacy, your name, uh, and what would you be remembered for most, what would that be? I see you touching on a lot of things, uh, being a mentor, being a great confidant to your loved ones, uh, the importance of your job, the special assistance, and having that wealth of insight and information. Uh, but ultimately, what would you want to be remembered for or known for most? Um, man, that's a good question, man. You really don't have to think about that that often, but you just never know what tomorrow may bring. But, you know, I just want to be remembered as a, a guy who who tried to make um, make every space that I was that I was uh, blessed to be in better than the way I found it. That's deep. Every space. I like that, bro. That's powerful. Hey, I appreciate you joining the Tough Juice podcast and sharing this platform with me. I know that I'm better from this conversation, and I learned a little something about baseball as well. Appreciate you, brother. Man, I appreciate it too. And karate, like I'm a huge basketball fan. I'm a huge college basketball fan. So watched you. <laughs> Great career, man. It, I'm I'm a huge college. I'm, I'm not so much on the NBA, you know, the last 10 years, you know, but I'm still a big big college fan. I love college basketball. I'm I'm final. I'm I'm going to KU to watch games. I'm going to UNT. I'm going to Rice. I'm going everywhere to watch basketball. I'm a huge college basketball fan. Yeah, I, I actually, my first job after I left the NBA, I was working with TuneIn with Jeremiah. But I also was working college basketball at the WCC Conference. And, bro, even though financially the, the big money was in the league, I did not want to be pulled away from college basketball. It was just like the energy was just... It was different, man. It was different, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Cause you get them when they you get them when they're young, and and before you know we get them big paychecks. Wrong <laughs> part. I get it. Real tough. How's basketball, man? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yep. Be safe. You, Appreciate yep. you.